The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. The financial crisis, 10 years after. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry. Now, we are fast approaching the 10-year anniversary of the demise of Lehman Brothers, which for many marks the peak of the financial crisis. So we're devoting our podcasts under the exchange brand, not the Views Room, to interviewing a number of politicians and bankers and others who were at the centre of the crisis all those years ago. These include the likes of Sheila Baer, who ran the FDIC at the time, Citigroup's former CEO Vikram Pandit, and politicians from Barney Frank and Maxine Waters to Kevin Rudd of Australia. To kick off our coverage, I'm joined by Breaking Views Washington correspondent Gina Chon and our global editor Rob Cox. Good day to you both. Hey, Anthony. Hi. So, Rob, let's start with you. It was your idea to come up with a sort of series of podcasts interviewing these people. What was it that, that you were trying to get? I mean, everyone's looking at the, at the crisis anniversary. We did something along with others five years ago. Why podcasts and, and why these people? It was just an opportunity to kind of go back a little bit like a where are they now mm. feature, right? So the podcast seemed like the best way to do it because you could sit down in a more relaxed setting. People don't feel like they have to adjust their tie. They're not in it necessarily in front of a large audience. They can have a sort of more intimate conversation with us and to talk about, okay, you know, revisit a bit about what, what, yeah. the, what they went through, what happened. And then to look back on, on what was sort of done in response and to, to ask the question, I think we all did in all these things around the world that we've done, you've done mm-hmm. uh, some, Gina's done some, Peter Thal Larson, others, um, and to ask, okay, like, are, have we solved this problem that we went, you know, are, are we any closer to solving a problem? Are we going to, where will we see the next financial crisis? What will yeah. it look like? What, what should we, we be afraid of? And then also to ask these people, how has it changed your life over the last 10 years? So you mentioned some of these people, um, uh, like uh, Sheila Baer, who was the head of the FDIC. You know, she's kind of left a lot of that. She's She sits on some boards. She um, ran, including Thompson, Thompson Reuters, Thompson Reuters uh, including, I think, a, a Spanish bank or the U.S. division. Yep. Um, she is um, someone who's gone and worked in education. She's done a bunch of other things. Um, I talked to Greg Fleming. So you remember he was the he was basically the guy who packaged and sold uh, Merrill Lynch to Bank of America uh, as Lehman Brothers was collapsing. It was that same night that Lehman filed for bankruptcy. They launched their deal and effectively saved Merrill Lynch. He's no longer, um, you know, using bank capital to run a business. He's actually involved in private wealth management and and he's in an entrepreneurial uh, uh, entrepreneurial venture with the Rockefeller family. So you see these kinds of like, where are they now? How do they view things? And are we any safer than we were 10 years ago? It just seemed like a good way to do it. And, you know, they're going to run. I think we have about a dozen of them. And they're going to run from next week, from the beginning of September, right through to around the middle of October. And if you remember back, that was, you know, those six weeks were the acute phase, at least of the financial crisis. The economic collapse followed. Market continued to decline. But those were those those were those weeks where you woke up or or rather didn't go to sleep um, and exactly. uh, and came into the office and were and as you remember it very well you and I were in those trenches together um, you know you weren't sure whether Morgan Stanley the next day was going to to be around yeah. by the end of the day or and then whether it was Citigroup next so it yeah, was that that was the idea it's, it's crazy sitting here looking back then and, and thinking well you're right I mean now we, here we are in August end of August thinking it's been uh, Tesla aside this year a very slow news month which it was actually in 2008 as well as we we looked at that 
But then yeah, it was it was just nothing but hit after hit after hit, you know, going through weekends, everything, late nights. It was just nonstop. You lived it. And you didn't really know whether the whole system would survive. I mean, yeah. there were real questions uh, about whether how we'd come through, you know, the, the, the sort of the U.S. economy, the global economy, the global economic order. Um, and uh, and so that's it's not to be diminished when we and talking to some of these people. I mean, sure. I mean, I'd love to hear it. Gina, you talked to Maxine Waters, for instance, who was uh, on in the House Financial Services Committee, right? At that time that they were trying to pass a bailout package. Yeah, no. And she still seems a bit bewildered by that period. Um, she kept recalling how there was really no plan B uh, besides the $700 billion um, TARP package that was presented by um, the Treasury Secretary at that time, Hank Paulson. Um, and she kept wondering herself whether she was making the right call by supporting that, but then realizing there was really nothing else on the table. And as, as you guys talked about, you know, banks were collapsing all around them and people were losing their homes. That was the issue, wasn't it? It, it, it took... Um, it wasn't so much whether you know uh, Lehman Brothers failed or not, or whether uh, Fannie and Freddie needed a bailout, or even AIG. What got these politicians to so finally say yes to that bailout at the end of September was seeing the market collapse um, a fair whack once once they first said no to it. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there were people who were against a bailout uh, for certain Wall Street firms. Um, there were a lot of opposition just to uh, the way President George Bush has handled the crisis at the time. So there was just a lot of uh, political machinations going on as well um, that stopped the bill from going through that first time around. And then, yeah, you saw the markets tank and lawmakers quickly change their mind. Yeah, you spoke to, as you're saying, something to Maxine Waters, and she had an interesting take on what's happening now, right? I think that, that there is still no plan B. Yeah, well, there. Uh, she was definitely against uh, the Republican efforts to roll back certain regulations from the Dodd-Frank bill that was passed in 2010. Uh, the Republicans managed to push it through with the help of some moderate Democrats. Um, so we'll see if uh, that goes any farther. But her uh, big issue is if she gets the chair in particular of the banking committee in the House, if the Democrats take the majority in November, is to address uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are the two, you know, arguably the two biggest unresolved uh, matters from the crisis that um, is still a long way from being addressed. Yeah, that was that there was a temporary fix basically in September 2008 to give, put them into conservatorship and bail them out. Well, 187 billion they got in total. They've now paid out way more than that in dividends to the U.S. government, but they are still sitting there under this sort of conservatorship doing. The same as they, in fact, they now, along with Ginny May, now account for even more of the uh, of the housing market than they did at the time of the crisis. Yeah, it's a very um, bizarre system that shows um, how Washington works or doesn't work, I should say. Because uh, on, on top of all the dividends they paid, they also still have this uh, credit line of about $258 billion or so um, that they can tap. And that doesn't count, though, as repayment mm. for uh, the dividends they've paid. So taxpayers are still on the hook and Fannie and Freddie still exist. Yeah, and it's, it's worth remembering, and obviously we're focusing on the reactions of, of, of financiers and politicians, but it's worth remembering, I think as you alluded to, Rob, 
the actual toll, I mean, just on the US economy, I think, was put at $30 trillion of, 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 of a hit to the economy by I think, Dallas Fed a few years ago. Almost 9 million people lost their jobs. 8 million households lost their, their homes. Uh, and that's before getting into, you know, various other things, you know, whether, you know, how, how long were people just left out of the workforce or could have had to put off what they wanted to do with careers or dreams or whatever. And a lot it of was, that came after. I mean, that's the, yeah. the so, you know, we think of but, September well, 13th. Some of the, some of the, ha- the housing crisis. Right, right. But you but. think some of the, so, something like September 13th, I think, was when the, the 13th, 14th, 13th yeah, 14th, when things really hit the fan, um, when Lehman filed, the markets went haywire. You know, and, and even if we go, as we are with this podcast uh, celebration, anniversary celebration, as it were, get to middle of October, you have to remember it was it was it was the lo- job losses, the Detroit, the, the you know, the, the, the bankruptcies of General Motors and Chrysler um, and all of that that entailed um, the, the people being tossed out of their homes. Um, you know, all of that took place over the next year or yeah. almost two years. You know, lo- lo- quite some time. Some yeah. It took a long time for the. The housing market, I think, went from I think it was around sixty nine percent home ownership rate in two thousand and six, and bottomed at around sixty two percent three ish years ago, and it's yeah. still only a, a, it's still not much higher than that. Well, sixty four percent now. I think it, uh, unemployment is still unemployment looks great. I mean, now three point nine percent unemployment versus ten percent at the peak of the crisis. But the participation rate is still way below where it was. It is, although we could get into that debate about whether it was right back when it was peak. I mean, you could make the case that actually not everyone should have their home. There's there's nothing wrong with not owning your home. One of the problems we got into was that both Republicans and Democrats, everybody saw it as this necessity that everyone owned their own home. I mean, I think it's quite interesting when you talk to – we haven't done all of these. For instance, Gina's going to be interviewing Gary Cohn in a live newsmaker at right. Reuters on uh, September, when is that? Seventeenth. 17th. 17th. We've got a few others in the bank, you know, that we lined up, um, like Neil Kashkari, who was involved with TARP, is now the uh, at the Federal Reserve in in Minneapolis. Um, Jeff Lacker, who was at the uh, at the Federal Reserve of Richmond when Wachovia and other banks under his jurisdiction were failing and merging. Um, so so we'll we'll see. But it's there. It does seem to be a certain consensus uh, or around. Um, in particular, the the fact that more, that banks, big banks, are required to hold a lot more capital, and that seems to give everybody comfort. Um, and even though there have been, you know, as even Barney Frank would admit, even though there have been some tweaks to the, to the, the 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 act that bears his and Christopher Dodd's name, um, there is a sense that because capital standards are so high, because there's just so much more wedged in there um, to protect against any any losses, um, that the system. Is safer. I don't. I don't know, Gina. I mean, that's prob- That's sort of the prevailing wisdom. I'm sure you get from when you talk to people at the Federal Reserve and and all the agencies and regulators in in Washington, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And they talk about uh, liquidity standards, stress testing. You know, all the bells and whistles they've added since the crisis. But you know, obviously, um, they didn't see the last one coming. At least not in time. And all these regulations really address the last crisis. So there are questions of you know whether they're prepared for the next one, what that will exactly be, and if they have the tools to deal with it. Um, One of the big risks they, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and others talk about is um, cybersecurity. And that's an an area where regulators don't have a lot of experience. So if uh, there is a big hack of a lot of banks and people are worried about, you know, whether their money is safe, you could see that causing a lot of ripple effects that I'm not sure um, Washington will know how to deal with. Yeah, and that brings up a, a point that 
that Shirabas sort of alluded to. I mean, she she did go over some of her battles with with other um, regulatory officials at the time. It's well known at the time. It's actually interesting that she also is against the rollback of some of the dog prank rules, even though as a Republican you'd think she'd be in favour. But she saw the pro the problems, didn't like them, and doesn't want anything to change on capital. But you know, w when you talk about um, cybersecurity, there, I mean, you've, you've, we've still got the same issue we had back then that there are a lot of regulators who are normally meant to be talking to each other, but often recreate a lot of what, she, what each other does, and so maybe misspending capital or misspending money or not putting enough to work in the right ways with, enough, with the right kind of people. And they're just not going to be well set up for certain crises as they hit. Yes, they know how to deal with loans going wrong, but they don't know how to deal necessarily yeah. with other things. There was, I mean, so a couple of other, everyone mentioned cybersecurity, that's for sure. It's almost one of those things where if everybody's mentioning it, it's almost certainly not going to be the problem. But <laughs> but who knows? I mean, because the problem is people just don't know how they'd respond or what the, the damage would be. But, you know, I've during these, these conversations, a couple other things have come up. You know, we moved a lot of, as part of Dodd-Frank, a lot of um, derivatives transactions were put onto clearinghouse. A lot of things were moved onto these clearinghouses. And there's a question of, like, well, what happens if the clearinghouse has a problem yeah. and so you, you get the transparency of knowing they're there and they're being clear and you can yeah. see it but on the other hand <laughs> everything's in one place so there's that places. that people cite that the other one i've i've heard is you know and if you look at it the 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 the, the sort of banks below 250 billion of assets but above 10 billion so those sort of there, there aren't a ton of them, but there are a lot of them. They, they don't have the same capital requirements that the big, big banks have. And there's some concern that, well, what happens with those guys if they were to get into a, into a, a problem? Would it be systemic? Probably not, but it would be it, it would hurt. Um, and and then um, and th that said is one of the articles that I'm pulling together on this is just looking at the cost of funding for the various levels of banks. And if you look at it for the first time in the last quarter or in the second quarter that the, the FDIC did their numbers, they sh it showed that small banks like community banks, which are the you know there there are more of them than there are uh, the big banks, but of course they have a very small percentage of the assets. But they now basically pay. Um, the same amount as, or I should say, the big banks pay the same amount as small banks. They're more or less on the same level in terms of their funding costs, which is the first time that that's happened really since before the crisis. And that's a reflection to some degree that the market is saying, ah, okay, these guys are all e on the same level of safety, right? One's not going to be bailed out or go bust over the other. But the, the bigger, the, the sort of big, this but middle tier. yeah, this middle tier, they're actually paying more than everybody. So yeah. But if that means that the market is actually accurately reflecting risk or concerns about risk, then it well, may it, not be it, such it a It should problem. be. I mean, because it, 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 it's almost a reflection of the last crisis where a yeah. lot of those middle-tier banks got in trouble because there wasn't much for them to invest in and put their, put their loans yeah. into that wasn't being taken up by, you know, you know, credit cards went into securitizations, auto loans went into securitizations, housing went into securitizations. So what do they go up, go into? Well, commercial real estate, for example. Yeah, and it gets regionalized, so it gets concentrated. Yeah. I mean, National City, remember, was a bank. Of, you know, remember that bank? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they went bust, and PNC I think there were PNC, which almost also PNC had its own trouble. Yeah. So it's, so if you look at that, the, the other concern I've heard a little bit about is just this: the great question about, um, you know, not just sovereign debt, but, you know, municipalities and yeah. states I mean, municipalities obviously can go bankrupt, as we saw with Detroit and some others. States cannot. Um, and you have a lot of these mismatches between, you know, promises and income to pay for them. And now that's not an acute that doesn't happen like in one, you know, snap, everything goes haywire. Mm. But it's one of these looming financial crises. Also, I mean, I'm, I would assume that the, the, the changes to the tax law last year have probably 
worsened it for some. They'll states. exacerbate it for states yeah. like New Jersey, you know, high New Connecticut, uh, you know, states that used to that are high tax states, high property taxes, yeah. high income taxes, um, that also have big deficits and are having trouble. You know, you could see that. Now the thing is, it won't be like one of these. It happens overnight, you know, or or over August in a few weeks. It'll be more like a slow, slow, yeah, burn crisis. Let's just go through. Um, who we've got lined up. We've mentioned a few of them already, but just give us a rundown and we'll jump in as and when as, as needs be to, to right. talk about Right, so, so we'll kick things off um, with Barney Frank, who's who, of course, was the uh, the, the co-sponsor of the, the great financial ref- or bank reform act um, that, that, that emerged from the crisis. And it's quite, John Foley interviewed him. Um, and, you know, he got he got him to talk a little bit, open up about, about his concerns about Republican efforts in the Congress to weaken the act. But I think I think in the end, the takeaway is that actually, you know, there's so much in there that's still robust and that most people agree with, as as Gina yeah. was saying, with the, the Federal Reserve chairman, um, you know, Randy Quarles with the Federal Reserve. I mean, most of these people agree with the great broad brushstrokes and, and don't really see that even now um, that there's much appetite um, to really withdraw from some of those decisions. Um, after that, we have Greg Fleming, who was uh, at, at Merrill Lynch. You know, it's quite interesting just to hear from my perspective, just the more personal level, Greg, you know, got out of, if, if you will, the whole big Wall Street construct. He did go and run Morgan Stanley's private wealth business and, you know, the, the great brokerage there that they that they assumed on the, from Citigroup, Smith Barney, and merged into their own. But, you know, he's talking a bit about just being why he's focused on, you know, capital light businesses and finance and why they're um, a great place to of course, be. He, he was uh, an, uh, uh, an M&A banker covering banks and insurance yeah. uh, in, in, the, in the before times. So yeah. it makes sense he's almost returning to his roots. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just, just without the added package. Well, you know, y- delivering advice of a sort, yeah. being paid for it and, and being, you know, and making money for clients. It's a yeah. pretty basic business. Um, yeah. And it is, he is actually working with the Rockefellers. So right. um, that's quite interesting. Then we have Maxine Waters. Okay, so Gina, that's over to you. Yeah, uh, as I mentioned, um, she's up for um, heading the banking committee if the Democrats take over, so that's a powerful position. Um, and she talked about the things that she'd want to focus on, but also um, whether she'd be willing to compromise, as she's seen as a liberal Democrat. Um, there, She has pretty strong positions on things, but being chair... Um, requires getting uh, bills through and um, she hasn't shown to uh, want to do uh, things like that in the past but we'll see if she changes her tune if she takes the leadership Um, and she also just talked about the hard choices that they had to make during the crisis and questions she had you know while she was going through it of whether she was making the right decision. Um, so I think a lot of that still stays with her as she uh, looks at how the financial landscape has changed. And then after uh, Maxine Waters, uh, Gina, you're interviewing Gary Cohn, who, uh, though a Democrat in the past, of course, worked uh, as the national economic advisor to the president, Donald Trump. So he's he sort of I guess he could give the other side to, to Maxine Waters perspective. Um I don't know. I mean, he also was president of Goldman Sachs. So you have so much you can ask him. Yeah, you need yeah. More, more than one newsmaker for this guy. <laughs> no, exactly. He, we're sort of viewing him as having a 360 view, if you will, of the crisis and its aftermath. Having, you know, been at Goldman, um, trying to help the bank survive during that time, and then 
when you joined the Trump administration, it was about looking back 10 years later and um, and seeing, you know, whether the regulations have been too harsh, whether they uh, were inadequate in some ways and what needed to be changed. So he has um, a lot of per- different perspectives now that he's been on both sides. And then we have Vikram Pandit, who was the uh the CEO of Citigroup, mm-hmm. uh, he was brought in kind of as they were in trouble, and then let it through. Um, left a few years later, um, he was. Uh, it was interesting talking to Vikram. You know, again, it's a great opportunity to sit with someone without cameras and just have yep. a little bit more of a relaxed conversation. Um, he talked a bit about um, you know his view of what, what the regulators got right, what they got wrong, and I, again, on balance. I mean, if if I recall, he was. He had the, pretty much the view that, we, you know, the capital standards, liquidity, TLAC, all these things that we've put in, you know, the stress tests in particular, yeah. have really made it a more robust um, uh, financial system. Then you, then I think you've got Sheila Bear after that. Yeah, so that, that that's a really interesting one because I think you know, the, the, the issues she had with other members of the administration uh, back in 2008 are well documented, not least by herself in her, in her own book a few years ago. Um, and she did focus on that a fair bit. We, you know, I asked her, you know, what happened with the, the going back to City? City was trying to buy Wachovia, you know, two drunks trying to prop each other up, and Wells Fargo comes in and and and, and steals it away in the end, and without needing any government support. And she said, look, a lot of this is, you know, it's it's being imposed by others in the administration, and I think you know, there's there's very much a sense from her that that, that there is a, a need to reform the regulatory structure somewhat. She wouldn't go into it as much, but you can certainly get that sense from her. But also you know, very much a, a desire on her part to move on. So like you said, she's on various boards, including actually on a couple of, of, of fintech players. So she's trying to sort of get away from that, as well as going into education for a couple of years as, as the president of a college. Um, but she said, you know, I keep getting dragged back into the into the debate. So, you know, when Congress passed uh, the changes to Dodd-Frank, I was out uh, earlier this year, I was out there saying, you know, you shouldn't do anything to, to reduce um, capital levels of banks. It's just not a good thing. And I think she's rather more on the on the, the side of wanting even more capital at banks, frankly, right. than, 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 than we see even now. And then, so she's followed by uh, Neil Kashkari, who, again, was another I, well, it was in the administration, was working for Hank Paulson um, in pulling together the TARP. Um, which was the great bailout package. We have Jeff Lacker from the Richmond Fed. These are, um, you know, we haven't yet uh, recorded them. They're all lined up, so they should be interesting. If anyone has any questions they'd like us to ask them. And then, yeah, and then there's one or two others. I think, well, in fact, one we had um, Paul Tucker, who was at the Bank of England at the time. Um, I think he was deputy at the Bank of England. Um, we've recorded that with Peter, and that's pretty interesting. He talks a little bit from the British perspective of that whole thing. And then, of course, you talked to the Australian prime minister, former prime minister. Prime minister did you yeah, know? that's interesting because they, they were somewhat... Uh, Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd. Right. They were somewhat set aside from uh, the, the global conflagration that happened. In fact, they're, they're still... I think now in like the 27th year of, of economic expansion. So it was much more about how much does what happened around the world affect us, even though we are relatively uh, rel- relatively secure. So the housing bubble didn't really hit them. They have a better system for that. There yeah. were issues with um, local authorities, councils, um, municipalities, and hospitals and like owning slugs of CDOs, would you believe, and getting hit there and actually having funding crises. I do believe it. <laughs> uh, yeah. that, that was, that was uh, to some extent, more of the issue that they had to deal with, as well as making, uh, making sure they had shored up their system enough. So I think we've got a real variety of voices, and I think uh, all of them will contribute in some way to creating this sort of sense of uh, that it will help people understand how we got to where we, ha- where we are today, or at least over the last 10 years, and really some, I don't know, some idea about 
what's going to happen, where we're going, and what still needs to be done to ensure that we don't go through another financial crisis. And it's worth just chipping in there that we'll also be complementing that with a series of articles, all of which, along with the podcast, will be available on a special page we're creating uh, to commemorate uh, the decades since the crisis. All right, Gina, Rob, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks. That's our show for this week. We doff our hats to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Andrew D'Antonio, and Ben Kellerman. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. Now, The Views Room is taking a break over the next few weeks while we air our crisis podcasts under our Exchange podcast brand. But please be sure to join us when we return in October.